This is Cheerful Book Club. Conversations with the writers shaping the way we think about our world. Ed Miliband, Jeff Lloyd, and friends spend time with the people behind today's smartest writing. In association with Vintage, read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. Hello. Hello. And welcome to the latest Cheerful Book Club. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it, review it, only if you're enjoying it, mind you. And it's um, really important that you subscribe as well using your podcast app because people tend to find podcasts by looking at the charts and that's a good way of getting it up the charts so other people can discover it. So let's talk about the latest Cheerful Book Club with Vintage. Yes, and we've got Rachel Maddow. Totally excited about this. She is a primetime anchor on MSNBC. A, le- a legend of the US big, broadcasting. Big figure on the American left. Um, and she's written a brilliant book about the oil industry called Blowout. Cheerful Book Club. Talking to the writers, exploring the biggest ideas of our time. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. So I'm delighted to say that we're joined on Cheerful Book Club now uh, from New York by Rachel Maddow, the author of the new book, uh, already a, a new number one bestseller in the New York Times, uh, Blowout, Corrupted Democracy, Rogue State Russia, and the Richest, Most Destructive Industry on Earth. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. I am so happy that you guys asked me to join you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, let's start. We'll get into the book and and then a bit into the state of uh, U.S. politics. But um, you studied. Uh, I, I didn't know this. I confess. You studied at Oxford and did did a a PhD on HIV/AIDS and the prison system. What What are your memories of of studying in Oxford and being in the UK? You have done your research. There are very few people who, I mean, some people know the Oxford thing. Definitely very few people know the title of my thesis. It's the first question I asked. It's the first question I asked. What was it about? Um, I, you know, I'm not sure that I would have gone to graduate school at all um, had I not won a scholarship that allowed me to go to Oxford, which was completely sort of beyond anything that I had planned. Um and I applied to the MPhil, the master's program, and then after like maybe 24 hours at Oxford, decided to transfer to the doctoral program and did the doctorate um, in a way that I, I probably didn't deserve to do. I was over my head for most of the time that I was that I was studying, but I had a great thesis advisor and Lucia uh, Zedner. I picked my college. Lucia Zedner, thank yeah. you very much. Um, this is your life. Um, <laughs> I went to Lincoln College because I was advised that they had the best food, which was absolutely true and is a totally reasonable way to choose your college. Very much so. <laughs> Did you acquire a taste for anything British while you were here? Did you try Marmite? I had Marmite for breakfast this very morning before coming here to speak wow. to you. Wow. It It has stuck with me. And in the book... There is a little sidebar story about a failed British effort to do fracking using Marmite as part of the fracking fluid, which is only in there because of my devotion to Marmite, (laughs) which I learned at Oxford. (laughs) Now, let's talk about your your book. Uh, It's a it's a it's a absolutely fascinating sort of expose, not just of the oil and gas industry, but but the effect it has on on states just, just for our listeners tell us a little bit about the main argument and perhaps what 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 motivated you to write the book 
You know, I have spent an inordinate amount of time since the 2016 election reporting here in the U.S. on the Russian interference effort and the implications that has for this strange presidency that we've been having ever since. And in covering that story closely, I found that the place where I was really stuck was figuring out Russia's rational motivation. Um, It just seemed to me like they were taking an incredible risk because as far as we can tell, they, like everyone, believed that Hillary Clinton was going to win the 2016 election. Um, And so taking this sort of wild swing at her and at the U.S. government by interfering in this way where they didn't even really bother to cover their tracks at all seemed to me like a very high-risk maneuver for the Russian government. Hillary Clinton was already a Russia hawk coming in. Had she been president with Putin having taken these shots at her, who knows what she would have done in terms of U.S.-Russian relations and confrontation. So that risk seemed so high. It made me start to look for what reward they could have been seeking that would have created a, a ratio that made that action make sense. And where I ended up at um, – just in trying to figure that out, was in looking at the Russian economy and this situation that they're in, which I think is underappreciated in the West, which is that they are a you know, gigantic country with a huge population and a ton of potential and a ton of resources. And they have an economy you know, smaller than Italy's. And the um, bad economic choices that Putin has made have been rational in in the sense that they have maximized and concentrated his power, but they've also made it made Russia essentially a petrostate um, that needs the access that needs access to Western oil majors in order to continue to produce for the one economic asset that they have as a country. And I think we also ought to appreciate that oil and gas tends to ruin governments everywhere they operate, almost everywhere they operate. And that those geopolitical consequences to me are interesting. And what is fascinating about the book, and I had no idea about, is the nexus between Russia, Rex Tillerson, who was the first secretary of uh, Donald Trump's first secretary of state, and Exxon Mobil, the, com- the the company he ran. Exactly, Exxon has a modern history of operating its own, essentially its own foreign policy, that is often in. undermining or in direct confrontation with American foreign policy. And so it's unusual on that front alone for a U.S. government to choose somebody who is a lifelong ExxonMobil executive um, to be the Secretary of State for the United States. After all, in his role, uh, particularly his senior roles at ExxonMobil, he had been operating what was in effect a competing foreign policy (laughs) against the United States. So that was a strange a strange choice in itself. It was also strange because President Trump had never met and had had no contact with Rex Tillerson before appointing him. He met him and named him Secretary of State immediately, uh, which never quite made sense. But on the Russia issue specifically, what Tillerson had done both as CEO and in the immediate previous job he had at Exxon was kind of figure out the, the, the size and shape of the key that you would need to unlock Russian oil for Western oil majors. And he essentially put himself and his company in service to Putin's political aims in a way that no other Western major was willing to do. He thereby was granted access to Russian oil in a way that other companies haven't been able to. He was also given the uh, the major Russian government award. Uh, he was perceived as having closer relations and more of an alliance with Putin than any other Western, uh, any other Western leader of any kind. 
And then he was named Secretary of State after Putin helped elect Trump president. That, those combination of factors, uh, that combination of factors to me is uh, gobsmacking still, regardless of his tenure as Secretary of State, just his ascendance into that position to me is uh, unimaginable except in this moment. You, uh, you introduced this concept of resource curse. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about that and how it applies to Russia and countries like Equatorial Guinea? Um, and also, so is it something that applies to the United States? Mm. It's a, it's a familiar academic concept that I think is seen as, you know, too fusty to explain, um, modern politics. But I think it's alive and well, and it is actually very helpful. The basic idea is that th- there's this sort of paradox that if you are a country that discovers resources that, um, that can potentially be very remunerative, but they need to be extracted from your country and sold on the international market in order for you to receive revenue from them. The paradox of that is while you would expect something that you could sell for a lot of money um, would result in a benefit to your country, what tends to happen in countries that find oil or mining resources is that the economy and indeed the way of life and the governance in those countries suffers. And so in a poor country like Equatorial Guinea, their discovery of offshore oil produced a gigantic revenue stream compared to their previous GDP. But the ultimate result was worse outcomes in terms of infant mortality and healthcare and education and repression. And it produced a, a governing family that was it had been fairly rapacious to begin with, but um, sort of set off in a new phase of almost orgiastic uh, wealth display and accumulation simply because they had access to Western oil money to do it. And you see that in, in, in stark form in countries like that, particularly poor countries like that. But I do think that you also see it at work in, in large countries like Russia where a non-diversified economy is Russia's economic curse and that effectively is the product of both political decision, decisions and the and the oil wealth of Russia. And I think you also see it in, in the United States where state governments in particular, some of them, have been quite captured by the industry and the, it, the states have suffered as a result despite the fact that they have got a ton of oil and therefore a ton of oil money. Talk to us about the influence of the fossil fuel industry in the United States. Um, I think I'm right in saying that the Koch brothers, who are these famous billionaires, uh, are rooted in oil. Is that right? That's right. Their um, grand, grandpapa Koch is credited with having uh, invented a, um, a major advance in refining, and so that started the Koch. That started the Koch fortune, with the, which the, the various brothers have have expanded. And it, and it goes beyond them, obviously. To, to the fossil fuel industry generally. When you look around, and we'll come on to some of the implications of this, how politically destructive is it? Well, it's interesting because the United States is a diversified economy. But in individual states, there is oil and gas dependence in states like Alaska and states like Oklahoma, which I write about extensively in the book. And what ends up happening is that in boom times, the revenue that you can get through taxing oil production seems like you know the the fountain of youth for your uh, for your state government. 
um, in lean times to the extent that you've depended on that and reduced other diversified revenue streams, um, a state can almost be brought to collapse. I mean, a, a commodity, a tradable commodity is a bad thing to build your budget on simply because pl- price fluctuations will always be beyond your control and are impossible to do, are impossible to do sort of long-term planning around. So petrostates tend to be poorly governed specifically because oil revenues are a bad thing to base your yearly budgets on. But the influence of the industry is something, it's almost more of a cultural problem with it, I think, here in the United States, which is that the industry has never been required to clean up after itself. The lack of accountability for their overall impact, not just on climate, but in terms of you know, shorter term environmental disasters has created a culture of um, impunity that it, I think infects the way that they try to influence politics. And what are the implications of your book and that power for the ability of the US to be part of tackling the climate emergency? Because obviously under Trump, it's a sort of, uh, at least internationally, a bit of a, well, it is a disaster in terms of his intentions around the Paris Agreement. But but obviously, there's a broader story than Trump here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very good question. And I think one that we've only sort of started to grapple with. It's uh, Structurally, I think of it as a, a little bit like a situation where you've um, misplaced your glasses. And at that moment, you are the least qualified person in the world to find your glasses because <laughs> you don't have your glasses on. <laughs> so yeah. I feel like – on on climate, making decisions about climate to the extent that our government has been somewhat captured by oil and gas interests, that precludes our ability to take a hard look at uh, climate and the way that the oil and gas industry needs to be constrained in, a, in order for us to meet our moral obligations towards stopping the climate catastrophe. If you believe that the climate catastrophe is real and is mobilizing new generations of activists who are correct in saying that the world has to mobilize against this and they will ultimately win the argument and they will therefore ultimately win the political fight and we will turn away from fossil fuels and we will limit the strength and influence of those industries. If you believe that's what that that is where we are headed, if you are hopeful enough to think we're going to grow up and deal with this as a planet – we should recognize that at that point when the oil and gas industry is disempowered, when they lose their influence, governments will fall around the world and the boundaries of countries will move because we don't appreciate well enough how much the oil and gas industry has propped up bad governments all around the world and bad systems of government yeah. because it suits their purposes. When they lose, the world will change. And that is an opportunity. It's also scary because it will be very destabilizing. And that part of it, I feel like, is worth starting to think about now by understanding the way that oil and gas industries prop up bad governance in in developed parts of the world and in developing parts. Now, talk to us about fracking because it's got a lot of scary stuff in your book about fracking and its geological, seismological impact – um, there is a ban. I think we don't know quite whether it's temporary or not. Ban on fracking. Um, here, uh, a number of the Democratic candidates have said they will ban fracking. I just wonder what you think about that, knowing what you do, having done this very detailed research and analysis in the book about fracking. Where you, what you think about that issue, how you think about it? Mm. It's a complex issue because 
fracking is a very effective way to get lots of oil and gas out of places that you couldn't otherwise get it from. And America has long sort of sung this siren song that in energy independence will somehow make us uh, ha- more happily isolated from the rest of the world and more insulated from negative international um, uh, negative international trends. The problem is, when- and it was indeed pushed by. Sorry to interrupt. It was indeed pushed by Obama a bit as well, wasn't it? Indeed, and the United States essentially took all the steps we needed to take in order to become energy independent under Obama, which Obama, in sort of unguarded moments, tends to brag about because he's, I think, he's frustrated he doesn't get credit for it after, yeah. after uh, running against John McCain and Sarah Palin, who sang "Drill, Baby, Drill" yeah. as a lullaby at the Republican convention yeah, yeah. against him. He really did drill, baby, drill. And so that energy independence um, bumper sticker, well, now we're there, and it turns out it's not that awesome. I mean, it's not like anybody in western Pennsylvania is buying locally produced artisanal <laughs> mom-and-pop oil shop yeah. oil. All that happens when you're producing a lot of oil and gas is that you put it on the international market, and it sells on the international market. It doesn't necessarily matter where it comes from. And what matters in terms of your energy independence is how much you're using. The less energy you're using, the more independent you are, regardless of how much you are producing. So the, the I feel like we've told ourselves a lot of lies about the benefits of oil production in this country. We have subsidized oil production. The thing that is, um, I think, hasn't sunk in politically here is that fracking has actually not turned out to be profitable in this country. It has been subsidized. It has made some people a lot of money in the short run. But if you look at the long-term investing uh, profile in terms of fracking outfits, it it hasn't turned out to make a lot of money. And the environmental consequences of it are deep and largely unknown, especially when it comes to uh, water supplies. So it's a it's a very mixed bag. Um, as a technological innovation, uh, one of the things I tried to document in the book is some of the funny and almost accidental ways we ended up developing this technology, uh, starting with trying to loose up tight natural gas by setting off nuclear bombs yes. under Colorado mountains. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's fascinating technology. And the industry is, I think, a little bit more – uh, shoots and ladders than they tend to admit. They try to seem like they're this sort of, you know, massively technologically advanced, scientifically impressive industry. It's kind of more piecing it together with duct tape and dental floss. But um, <laughs> yeah, it is a way to produce oil and gas and uh, and a lot of environmental unknowns. We, we look for sort of hopeful signs um, in on this podcast. Are there signs of hope in the fact that the younger generation of Republicans, despite Trump's position on the climate emergency, appears uh, – Republican voters – appears to be more concerned about the environment. And some people say, see his embrace of the trillion trees idea, whatever its flaws, as, as some sign of that? Yes, that is a reason to be cheerful, as they say. Um the, the younger generation, wherever they are on the ideological number line, I mean within reason, um, does get the severity of this crisis and the urgency of this crisis and demands a better response from both Republicans and Democrats. And that is something that I don't think young conservatives are going to grow out of because as they mature as human beings, this climate crisis is going to become all the worse. I mean – the 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 physical imperative of what's happening in the climate is inescapable for anybody who is looking at it, and the demands of younger gen of the younger generation of people younger than myself 
are so insistent and so well-reasoned that I think it is inevitable that they will win both the argument and then the political fight. And the denialists and the resistors will just age out ultimately. The question is whether they do so fast enough. But I do think on the horizon that I, what I can see in terms of my lifespan, this, th- there will be radical change in terms of us approaching this. It will be insisted upon. A bit uh, closer on the horizon. Um, I wondered if you could give us a picture of where you think we are in the democratic race at the moment. We are in a big mess. <laughs> is where I think we, we are. are too, Rachel. But, you know, actually, <laughs> yes, it's. Um, but you know, that's it's democracy. It's the way it should be. The Democrats are earnestly engaged in a process of choosing their nominee that is a, turning out to be a hard decision for the Democratic electorate and it's likely to be one that goes on for a long time and that has a lot of like dangling threads and black boxes in it. I mean to have Michael Bloomberg competing A, as a Democrat when he has been not a Democrat for a lot of his life, competing without um, putting his name on the ballot in any of the early states, spending hundreds of millions of dollars to the point where one wonders what else there is for him to buy. I mean, that's <laughs> such a black box in the middle of the race. Um, to have Bernie Sanders running essentially the same campaign he run in tw- ran in 2016 without having expanded his base at all, and in fact with his base having sort of shrunk, but with there being so many other credible candidates in the race that even his shrunken support is larger than any of the ascendant candidates have been able to garner thus far. That's a really strange dynamic. To have Joe Biden, the former vice president, tanking uh, and and broke while the establishment still insists that he's their guy, it is uh, – I don't – I have no – it's the most important Democratic presidential primary of my lifetime. I have absolutely no idea how it's going to work out. There is clearly – extreme paranoia among the democratic establishment about bernie sanders winning the nomination on the grounds that he can't beat trump what what, what do you think about that anxiety i mean you you know we you know the thesis our listeners will know the thesis a self-declared socialist yada 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 you know he can't possibly win that conventional wisdom feels too simplistic but what, what do you think absolutely it does feel too simplistic i mean First of all, in a two-party system and a, and a basically divided down the middle country, anybody who wins the nomination of one of the two major parties has a 50 percent chance of being the next president. Full stop. Second of all, anybody who tells you based on either polling or punditry that somebody is unelectable as the nominee of a major party missed 2016. That said, on his own terms, Senator Sanders, his sort of theory of the case – of, of why he is electable um, and why he has a, a different path to victory than other more moderate candidates might have, but it's viable and he's still a safe choice. His his case is that he can he can get more people to vote than would otherwise vote. He can goose turnout, particularly among young voters. Well, it's a good argument in political science terms, but in Iowa, the first test of it. Um, Voter turnout was down. Voter turnout was uh, – the record voter turnout was 2008 when Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were competing in the Democratic primary in 2016. Iowa was way down um, and the numbers this year were along the line of 2016, which was to say way down. Then in New Hampshire, 
the voter turnout in New Hampshire was in line sort of with what it had been in the last uh, – in 2008 in the last uh, primary in which there was a lot of Democratic enthusiasm. But the young voter turnout and those are the voters who support Senator Sanders, they were down as a proportion of the electorate. And the places where the electorate was most expanded in New Hampshire were places that voted for people other than Bernie Sanders, people who voted for Mayor Buttigieg or for Senator Klobuchar. And so – Senator Sanders's case that he can turn people out and therefore you shouldn't be worried about the people he'll turn off is not being proven out by his by his admittedly successful run in the primaries thus far. So that's the real problem with him, not something about his ideology or something about his presentation. I think we should ignore those things and look at the way he plans to win. Did you did you follow our our general election at the end of last year? It didn't go you, so well. Do you see parallels with Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders? You know, it's amazing the number of people who drew parallels between Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn un- until that election happened. <laughs> and then once that election happened, everybody denied they had ever made such an allegory. Um, that was a very, you know, he was a very he was he was proudly claimed um, as the as the reflection or uh, you know the the mirror image of Senator Sanders until until that de- defeat. But um, it, it's, I mean, it's. Uh, Every election is different. Every candidate is different. It's, it's, you know, I think it's hard for us here. It's hard for me not to still draw parallels between the original Brexit referendum and the, and the, and the Donald Trump victory in November of 2016. It's hard, it's hard not to draw these parallels between our countries, but it's probably folly. I mean, I'm, I'm a bad pundit anyway, but boy, have I learned humility over these, (laughs) over these last four years. Isn't there a fundamental, um, sort of problem that we share and indeed uh, parties like the Democratic Party and the Labour Party share around the world, which is how you square this young metropolitan uh, sort of millennial-ish electorate with this older, more blue-collar electorate. And that, that, you know, that is the, that is the, and I know this is a sort of rather banal and obvious statement, but that is the thing that Trump is playing on, isn't it? And and that is and that is the thing that Hillary Clinton didn't crack and uh we certainly didn't crack here either ultimately i i think that elections are decided by who votes by who has uh the ability to vote uh in our country we have serious and in and worsening problems in terms of voter suppression and access to the ballot box those things really matter um it's who can vote, who's motivated to vote, and who takes time to do it, who believes that the democracy is their own. And regardless of what you're selling in terms of policies or vision for the future, the candidate who can engage citizens to believe that the, the democracy is their own and that it is for them and by them and that it is not just your you know eat your vegetables responsibility to go vote, but it is your – right and your cherished right and your pleasure <laughs> to go vote and take your space in this democracy that has made room for you that i think it, that i think is what makes the difference and so it senator sanders theory of the case about motivating more people to vote is i think ultimately right he's not demonstrating an ability to do that some of the more moderate candidates are, which raises a question as to whether or not sort of, uh, you know, bluntly inspiring, <laughs> uh, you know, revolutionary rhetoric um, is the way you get people off their butts and into the polling places. 
it's uh, – I mean, I, I would never run for office. I don't envy anybody who is running for office. We'll play this, this tape back, Rachel, when you run. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> if I ran for the president of The Rachel Maddow Show, I would We'd lose come the and election. work for you. I promise you. We'd come and, we'd come and volunteer. <laughs> it would be such a terrible idea. I couldn't get elected dog catcher in my town of 700 people in Western Massachusetts. I wouldn't vote for me. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard thing. But I do, I, I do think, especially as America has incredibly low voter turnout. And that's, that's the thing that politicians need to crack because we do need and this is in part what the book is about as well we need a small d democratic awakening we need civic belonging um, where people believe their country and their country's governance is uh, for them and that the best way for us to solve our problems is for us to use our political system to solve our problems to make it work because opting out of the democratic process is something that um, trumpist um, sort of authoritarian leaning uh, governance wants. They want us to believe that the political system is rigged and it doesn't work for you and it's um, unfair and uh, potentially something that gets you in trouble and you shouldn't use it. It's only for the powerful and uh, therefore you should opt out and complain about it and be cynical and go back to your screens. Engaging people to know that this is our government for us and it's our elections and they're for us, that's that's the that's the magic sort of that's the magic that we need. I'm, and I'm voting for it that. It remains to be seen if any of the candidates will have it. I'm voting for You're that. voting for Rachel I'm as Mad- dog, dog catcher Mad- Mad- in 2024 for dog catcher, yeah. Last question. This is the Cheerful Book Club. Tell us something about the world that makes you cheerful or about indeed about the US that makes you cheerful at the moment. What keeps you going? I'll tell you two things, one personal and one political. The personal thing that keeps me going is compartmentalization. <laughs> this, has been, this has been a very stressful time to be daily engaged in news and politics um, while, our, while our politics are taking such a dark turn, while our governance has gone so off the rails, while we are – I mean we're in constitutional crisis this week and I don't say that lightly. The toll that it has taken is something luckily that I feel like I recognize and I'm pretty good at like turning off work, turning off politics and – Going ice fishing, or wow, maybe that's what uh, I should take up. Drive, or maybe I should take up ice fishing. I will teach you if you want to learn it. Okay, you're on. Fantastic! Didn't you break your ankle? (laughs) Didn't you break your ankle ice fishing or something? I broke my ankle getting into a boat in the summer, and it affected my ability to be ice fishing. I'm I'm sort of better now. It was it was very annoying. Um, and, And and for the country, I will say that the. Big, messy, hard-fought Democratic primary with all sorts of crazy dynamics that make it very unpredictable actually gives me joy. And I complain about it a little bit because it is hard to cover and I think it is going to go on for a long time. But we are using our democratic processes to make a hard decision among the Democratic electorate that is incredibly high stakes and flexing those muscles after a, a couple of years of Worrying about the state of our democracy, uh, flexing those muscles feels great, and I'm happy. I'm I'm happy, and I'm engaged, and I'm delighted by the messiness and the sort of bigness of the fight on the Democratic side. And I don't know if it's going to produce the the quote unquote right result. I don't know what result it's going to produce, but that uncertainty, the the knowledge that this democratic process is is woolly and working and hard fought just feels like the right way forward and it gives me great pleasure 
Well, look, Rachel Maddow, you make us cheerful. Um, you've officially exclusively told us you're not running for dog catcher of your town of 700 um, uh, people, but you do have a fantastic book out. Uh, it's Blowout. People should buy it. They can uh, watch you on MSNBC. Thank you so much for joining us. Ed and Jeff, thank you so, so much. It's such an honor to be with you guys today. Thank you. Cheerful Book Club is produced by Emma Corsham and Joel Pierce for Cheerful Productions in association with Goldfish London. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more.